This episode is brought to you by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook of your choice and support this show by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Backman Show, The Good Fight, This Week in Blackness, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, The F Word with Laura Flanders, The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Activism from Color of Change, and Sarah O'Neill on AJ+. A total of 111 people were killed by police in the United States in March, the month that just ended, March of 2015. To give you some sense of context for those numbers, since the year 1900, in the entire United Kingdom, it appears that 52 people have been killed by police, according to a list of UK police killings. Some of the highlights from March 2015 in the U.S. involving American police. Police beat Philip White to death in New Jersey. He was unarmed. Police shot and killed Megan Hockaday, 26-year-old mother of three. Police shot and killed Nicholas Thomas, an unarmed man who was working at Goodyear in Metro Atlanta. Police shot and killed Anthony Hill, an unarmed war veteran fighting through mental illness in Metro Atlanta. Officer Matt Kenny shot and killed an unarmed 19-year-old after someone reported that there was a black man yelling and jumping around in the street. Um, uh, just uh, another one of these stories where the uh, alleged suspect supposedly broke into a home and tried to strangle someone, and uh, the officer later said that the teen tried to assault him. A second officer said, oh, shots were fired before we even showed up but there were no guns found at the scene, which raises some pretty serious questions. And, you know, you could try to explain this drastic contrast, 111 people killed by police in the U.S. last month versus 52 killed by U.K. police over the last 115 years. You could say, well, consider population differences or something like that. It still doesn't add up. No, even if you adjust uh, per capita, we are still, uh, you know, it's really disproportionate. And it's very it's, disproportionate. Yeah, it, it's cultural. You know, I mean, how do you fix this? I mean, we are we're in pretty deep here. Well, how do think we about. I was saying that's exactly the th- phrase I was thinking of. We're in so deep. If you consider militarization of police, overuse of SWAT teams, even for uh, drug offenses, no knock warrants, um, war on drugs, the, that entire war on drug war on drugs uh, status quo. Tons of guns in the streets, right, which make police more scared. I think that that is barely ever discussed. Do we uh, try and develop some type of extremely effective non-lethal alternatives uh, here that police can carry? Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem that they would go for that. Well, in, and think about tasers, right? Initially, tasers were supposed to be used as a non-lethal alternative when otherwise using your firearm would be justified. But since then, we've seen tasers increasingly used, even in scenarios where uh, it's just to, to kind of try to get compliance from a suspect rather than as an alternative to when you would use a firearm. So I wouldn't be convinced that if we were to develop more non-lethal means, that they would simply be used as a sort of blanket, uh, irrationally and haphazardly. They could be, but at least there would be less people killed. So uh, if you have, you know, those weapons being abused and more people being injured and more people being, uh, you know, you know, I don't know, attacked unprovoked with them, uh, at least they wouldn't be dying or, you know, paralyzed. So you need to stop the killing. 
Today's good fight is about a moment and a movement and a vision, all connected by three words. Black lives matter. 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 Today, we're going to try to answer a question. Why Black Lives Matter? Why that slogan? Black Lives Matter seems so obviously true, so self-evident, that at first it seems incredibly weak. Like, who wouldn't agree with that? And yet, to some ears, typically white ears, it sounds insulting, as in, who are you to accuse me of thinking black lives don't matter? And for some people, apparently, it sounds like the protesters are saying that lives that aren't black don't matter. Everyone's been saying black lives matter, and they do, Mm -hmm. but all lives matter. Saying black lives matter imply that white lives don't, correct? Why does black life only matter? Those clips were from Fox News, Fox News, and Glenn Beck, who used to be on Fox News. Needless to say, all of those people don't get it. But if you do want to get it, you actually have to go right to the moment when Black Lives Matter started and then trace the whole arc of the movement that Black Lives Matter has come to represent. Today, we're going to hear the whole story from the inside of how it began, why it blew up, why it matters, why Black Lives Matter matters directly from the woman who created it, Alicia Garza, who coined the phrase and who co-founded the organizing campaign that helped spawn this movement in the first place. Why Black Lives Matter emerged as the uniting rallying cry for the political igniting of a rising generation. That is the story today, as episode 40 of The Good Fight starts now. If you go to google.com slash trends... You can type in a phrase and see a little graph of how much people search for it over time. And if you search for Black Lives Matter, what you see is a graph that's basically a flat line, nothing happening, and then a couple of little bumps, and then a huge spike, like almost straight up, in November 2014, after the grand jury failed to indict the police officers who killed Michael Brown and then Eric Garner. That's when most people heard about it. But in fact, the phrase was actually invented a lot earlier. On July 13th, 2013 the day that a different jury handed down its decision in a different case. I remember that I was actually waiting for the the verdict to come down. This is Alicia Garza, today's guest. She's an organizer and activist based in Oakland, California. And that particular day, I was at a bar with a friend, and we were having drinks and, you know, speculating about what we thought the verdict might be, what we thought the outcome might be. In the circuit court of the 18th Judicial Circuit in and for Seminole County, Florida, state of Florida versus George Zimmerman, verdict, we the jury find George Zimmerman not guilty. So say we all four person. It just got quiet. It, it felt like we all collectively felt a gut punch. I started thinking about my, my baby brother, and he's not really a baby anymore. He's 25, just one of the sweetest people you would ever meet. And he lives in a predominantly white suburban community, and he's a six-foot-tall black man. And Trayvon could have been my brother. You know, I remember also feeling enraged and really profoundly sad. 
When I looked around me, there were a lot of other black people around me. I was seeing almost like our collective shape just feel really defeated. So I'm sitting next to four or five other people, and we're all on our phones, and we're you know, interacting online, but we're also interacting with each other. And this is at the bar? This you're... is at the bar, yeah. You know, I, I spend a lot of time on Facebook, <laughs> like many other people my age. Like all of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was scrolling through my timeline to see what my community was saying. There was a lot of kind of speculation about what did Trayvon do in order to put himself into a position of danger rather than um, a, a more fundamental question, right, which is uh, what could push uh, someone like George Zimmerman to kill a 16-year-old child? Juror B-76, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror B-37, is this your verdict? Yes. Juror you know, folks saying things like, well, we knew that that this justice system was never going to provide justice for Trayvon, and that's just kind of the way it is. And so what we need to do is X, Y, and Z. You know, we need better parenting in black communities. We need more education. But all of those responses were really attacking black people as if we have some kind of pathology. So I'm sitting there with friends, and, and, and we're talking, and, and you know, I just started saying stuff on Facebook, and one of the things that I said was, it's really important for us as a community to stop pathologizing ourselves and to really investigate what are the conditions under which these things can happen. You know, black people, I love us, I love you, we matter, black lives matter. And my close friend, Patrice Colors, she was also online at the same time, and, and she saw that, and she reposted it and shared it, and then she put a hashtag in front of it. The story of how that phrase went from Alicia's Facebook wall to the front pages of newspapers and network TV all over the country is pretty amazing. But before we get to it, I want to touch on this point that Alicia made when we talked to her. To overgeneralize a bit, white people have a tendency to assume that the phrase Black Lives Matter is addressed to them, either in general or to police officers specifically. That's definitely not how it began. This really did start as a, a love letter to, to black people. And it, it was really a cry for us to say, let's stop self-pathologizing and let's start getting active together in our own defense and in support of each other. What is also true about Black Lives Matter is that it is a call more broadly to our society, and it's really a counterpoint to systemic racism, which is rooted in anti-blackness. This isn't about people being mean to each other. There are many instances of prejudice, and, and that's not what we're fighting. What we're talking about is the multiple ways in which black communities are at the losing end of almost every disparity that you can think of, whether it's employment, whether it's wages, whether it's level of organization, whether it's related to questions of gender in the workplace, whether it's related to health access, education, anything you can think of, black folks are at the losing end. For Garza, the murder of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of George Zimmerman wasn't about racism at the individual level. It wasn't about what was going through George Zimmerman's mind. It was about all the layers and decades of injustice that made that moment, the moment that Zimmerman moved his finger a tiny bit and killed Trayvon Martin, 
that made that moment possible. And she saw those layers in an extraordinarily vivid way because of something that had happened to her as a preteen. I grew up in San Rafael in the Canal District, which is a very low-income, mostly black and brown area in Marin County. Went to elementary school there, and I do remember actually changing schools when I was in sixth grade and moving to Tiburon, one of the wealthiest towns in the entire world. (laughs) I was one of maybe three or four black students in the entire school. We had ski week, which I had never heard of before I got there, which, (laughs) which is, you know, a week off so that parents can take their family skiing, right? And they don't have to miss school. Like, it sounds like you just went from one world to another. I did. I absolutely did. After years of struggling financially, Alicia's parents had found their footing with a small business selling antiques. In seventh grade, in this new school, in history class, we had to do some show and tell. And, you know, my dad thought it would be really cool if I brought a bayonet from the Revolutionary War to history class. And, and everybody else thought that was real cool. But when that is cool. <laughs> now that I think back on it, I'm like, I can't believe I brought a bayonet to school and like lived to tell the story, right? Especially in the that current condition. Like a rich white school. Totally, right. right? Right? But if I had done that at the school that I came from, you know, it would have been bad news for me. The experience of those two disparities really solidified for me that there are some things underneath uh, why some people have and some people don't. This realization of the impact of social structures on the lives of individuals is something a lot of people don't see. It's something a lot of powerful people don't want us to see. Listen to this speech that Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker gave at a conservative conference a few weeks ago. In America, the opportunity is equal for each and every one of us. But in America, the ultimate outcome is up to each and every one of us individually. Starting in middle school, Alicia knew that this just wasn't true. It wasn't actually about your skill or um, how hard you worked, right? Some of it was just about the family that you grew up in and the access that you have. Mostly it's about the chances that you get in life that are based on gender, they're based on your race, they're based on your nationality. Um, And that, you know, I learned over time that there's things that we can do about that. My parents were like, I want you to be a lawyer or an award-winning writer. And, and so I always joke with people and say that my parents were grooming me to be Condoleezza Rice. And then at some point I defected, <laughs> right, and said, no, that's not the path for me. <laughs> After college, Alicia became a community organizer in Oakland, going door-to-door and working with low-income families. By 2013, she was in the job she holds today, the Special Projects Coordinator for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And by the way... That is an amazing group. You can hear their whole story on The Good Fight, episode 17 at thegoodfight.fm slash 17, featuring the amazing Ai-jen Poo, who just published a terrific book and who put us in touch with Alicia. Thank you, Ai-jen. Anyway, back to the story. Alicia and her co-founders didn't just come up with the phrase Black Lives Matter. They came up with a whole campaign and built a community online and off that helped drive activism across the country. Patrice and her team actually did a protest into Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive. And they brought signs and and banners that said Black Lives Matter. And they were really beautiful, incredible images. And then, of course, we saw how in Brooklyn, there were thousands of people who marched 
across the Brooklyn Bridge carrying signs that said Black Lives Matter. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, we actually saw a episode of Law and Order SVU, which is one of my favorite shows, I confess. <laughs> <laughs> they did a mashup of what happened with Paula Dean and the case of Trayvon Martin. And there's a protest scene and the images in the protest are all Black Lives Matter. Kid in a hoodie, wrong place, wrong time, wrong skin. When something shows up on a Law & Order episode, you know it's entered the national conversation. But Black Lives Matter didn't stay there. As time passed, most of the national media moved on. And then, in August, Ferguson exploded. I remember that evening, I believe, turning on the news... After Michael Brown was killed, seeing the National Guard and seeing the tear gas and seeing police in riot gear. And I remember just kind of staring at my television and going, what is happening? Why, why is there, why does this look like a war zone? Why does this look like Baghdad? This is, you know, I had to even look up where is Ferguson, right? Nobody knew. I don't know if you knew, but I surely didn't know where Ferguson, Missouri I was. I definitely didn't know. No. The idea that came up was to do a freedom ride to Ferguson. 500 black folks, journalists and bloggers and medics, attorneys, organizers. And, and then some folks are just people who have never been involved in activism before. When I arrived, people were exhausted and... um really traumatized. It's no small thing that people were having tear gas canisters thrown at them, that folks were being chased by, by police in riot gear with huge guns. It's, that's not a small thing, and that's not something that you shake off. I heard, I heard officers calling people on the street niggers. I saw officers wearing I am Darren Wilson wristbands. I saw officers snickering and laughing about the fact that a child was killed. Missouri was the last state to abolish slavery. The Klan is still active. You, you can see that really clearly in the landscape of St. Louis in particular. St. Louis also has a long history of resistance, and you can see that too. So I spent, on and off, I spent about five and a half weeks in Ferguson. Most of what I spent my time doing was just building relationships with folks and, and learning about people and what they cared about and what they'd been going through. We were lifting up the voices of young folks in the community, of queer folks, um, of women. When I left St. Louis, I left with just a heart that was so full of all of the incredible work and commitment and dedication of folks there who, um, you know, are still fighting. Where were you when when the grand jury's decision came down? I was back in Oakland. Bob McCullough was the district attorney um, in the case of Michael Brown, who convened the grand jury around whether or not Darren Wilson would be indicted for murder. In Bob McCullough's career, he's never actually indicted an officer in an officer-involved shooting. 
we were all pretty clear that there was not going to be an indictment. We were preparing for that emotionally um, and also physically. We were in a planning meeting for a civil disobedience, and so it was a real different feeling than than the way I felt when I was learning about the not guilty verdict in the case of George Zimmerman. I felt really confident that people weren't going to take it sitting down. I believe you wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, Walter Scott. I did. The young man who, as Wait, it turned Wasn't he 50? Yeah, I guess he was. <laughs> you know, black don't crack. That's not a good matter. <laughs> I'm just so used to saying young man because usually they are young men. But yes, he was a 50-year-old man who was uh, <clears throat> stopped by a police officer for having a broken taillight. And uh, the video recently came out. I believe it came out actually just yesterday. The video showed that the officer shot him in the back while he was fleeing, shot him eight times, then proceeded to yell at this this man's dead body to put his hand, put your hands behind your back. I assume that he wasn't dead yet. He was shot eight times in the back. I don't know. I'm, I'm, please don't. <clears throat> I'm not saying he was good. But in, in any event, the man was lying face down on the ground, and he went walked oh, up to no. him and said, "Well, I mean, put your hands behind so your back." So this is what. So let's let's actually have this moment here. Um, so the police officers. We talked about this yesterday, and I talked about. I actually gave kind of a narration of the um, the police officers shooting the man in the back, and it was so rapid that like it, you don't even notice it. But they shot I think eight or nine times, and or, like like in the first like seven or eight shots were just rapid. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even look like it's someone shooting multiple times. It looks like just like one shot, but it's like seven or eight different shots. He shoots him in the back. He walks towards him, radios in that um, there is, that the guy tried to steal his uh, taser, and he's a shots fired guy tried to steal my taser, and then goes over to him and drops a weapon near him. Mm-hmm. I would argue, I would argue, I would argue that there's a couple of levels okay. of this Walter Scott thing. So one, you have the the, the fact that it's, uh, this man was shot, killed, uh, and then, uh, and have a weapon pl- planted on him. You have the reports because there was a two-day period where the police officer didn't know there was video mm-hmm. of what happened. And the reports that came out and his report of being scared and that's why he had to fire all this other stuff or whatever. The fact that there was a black dude, a black cop basically standing there as this entire process unfolds. Right, so there are so many different levels of this, and then when they finally find out, and now everyone is like, "Oh, I'm so horrified and disgusted by this." Whereas, how many times have we discussed? And I, I, within the black community, for those of you who are not members of the black community, and for those of you who might not have the same experience with it, the idea of a cop shooting you and planting a weapon is as old as I—I I don't know. It's, it's it's a stereotype. That's the joke uh, from Dave Chappelle about sprinkling a little crack on it. 
Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's like, it's a gag. It's such a problem that we're just used to it. Someone posted a meme on, um, on, on Twitter where it was Jazz from the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and he was in court and he had his hands up and they were like, sir, you can put your hands up. He's like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not putting my hands out so you can say I reach for it or whatever. This has been something it's a Fresh Prince of Bel Air reference. Mm-hmm. So just for those of you who might not be as old as, let's like, say, our parents, something like that, like the Fresh Prince of Bel Air is not exactly a new program. Mm-hmm. It's thirty years old at this point, right? Like something, something like uh, uh, twenty, probably. twenty, twenty something, twenty, yeah. And so we have a lot of these situations happening. So, so we have a stereotypical re- uh, interaction with the cops. That the fact that what they were saying when they thought there was no video around it, and then ha- as we talk about the reports from the news uh, uh, media around what's happening, somehow still centering everything around the criminality of his background, even though fuck the fact that we're looking at what he did and what happened and the fact that they shot him in his back and then naturally because let's not forget the part where after they shoot him and they go to his body he radios in says that the guy wrestles him for his taser goes back picks up the taser goes back to the body drops the taser next to his body so that it's and there's no there's no moment of him being horrified or like oh my god what am I going to do and like having conversations like what should we do should we uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean to do this this was a mistake he, he, he attacked me I didn't know what to do, and like, all right, well, wait, we need to do something. Maybe, uh, fine, you know, put your taser next to him so that, like, we have that on. A, that didn't happen. This felt like it was a routine. It oh, felt yeah. like it was it was comfortable. Some people on Twitter, when I pointed this out, was like, this feels like something that he was trained to do. Like he knew what the next process of it this was, mm-hmm. and. So when we talk about police brutality, when we talk about what happens with within the community, you have to now then, like, for all the p- things that we know did happen, so, like, we know the Walter Scott thing happened, right? But why do we know? Aaron, why do we know Walter Scott happened? Um, because um, uh, social media and also because it was gruesome as all get out. Well, it, was, it, it wasn't even that. It was, the fa- it, was, it was because it was recorded. It was that we saw it. It was that you can't argue because someone literally jumped over fence after fence to record this. That is why we know because otherwise the story would have been the scary Negro and he, uh, well, wrestled him for his gun. He felt afraid. He had to shoot him. The Negro was killed. He tried to take his weapon. The weapon's right next to him. This is what happened. End of story. That is not what the story is because we know and we can see what happens. So the question then, like, like for people, like, please don't, within the black community, this is not a question that we actually have a lot. We, we kind of like, we have a, a certain belief system here around how this works. But for folks who always want to blame Negroes for everything, like, it's always our fault. We've always, we're always the reason why something happened. The question becomes, how many people of color have been killed by police officers? And because there was no video, we don't know that they planted the weapon next to them. So every time they're like, oh, well, there was a weapon near them. Like, this, this happened recently with, 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 uh, with, uh, people. This, this happened a couple times in STL at the, uh, at the, um, the gas station where someone got shot and they said that, uh, the, uh, which one, that it, they shot them first, right? But you couldn't see what was happening. You couldn't see close enough to the body. The question becomes, how much of all of this is bullshit? Most of it. Well, I, you know, I'm not gonna. Uh, I, I feel like you can't say most of it just to say it. I feel like that, that, like we we don't know. But I would argue that not knowing is almost as bad as just saying most of it because, like, if we can't believe in our system enough that we can trust our police officers, we can put, trust the people that are supposed to protect us. What the fuck type of system do we have? Like, can we? 
what does any of this mean? Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. The state of South Carolina filed murder charges against Michael Slager after video surfaced of the white police officer shooting a black man named Walter Scott eight times in the back. While indignation is widespread, for many, the question is no longer, if it ever was, how could this happen? But instead, how would this have played out without that videotape? Even there, we don't really have to guess. As Adam Johnson, writing for FAIR, pointed out, we can assess that by looking at the initial coverage before the video surfaced. Coverage that hewed tightly to the police's official narrative, amplifying a storyline that, as it turned out, was made up. Charleston's local ABC affiliate WCIV began their report, a man involved in a traffic stop that turned into a physical altercation with a North Charleston police officer died Saturday after being shot by the officer. But the video shows that there was no physical altercation. The story again mixed up police assertion with fact, telling viewers, Police and witnesses say Scott tried to run from Slager before turning to fight for the officer's taser. It was during that scuffle that the officer fired his service weapon, fatally wounding Scott. But what witnesses? Reporter Greg Woods was unable to provide evidence of any. It appears the police simply told him that there were some. The local CBS affiliate, WCSC, did interview the victim's family, but they too did little more than provide a platform for a police retelling of events, including Scott taking control of Slager's taser and using it against him, which we know, because of the video, did not happen. And NBC affiliate News 2 would state that Scott was pronounced dead despite the life-saving efforts conducted by officers, which we know because of the video, only occurred after police handcuffed the dying man while apparently planting evidence next to his body. Again, then, a story that was patently false presented as straight recounting of events. The point isn't that law enforcement should never be believed, but the Scott shooting should serve as a stark reminder that they cannot simply be given a platform to spin out their narrative without challenge.
Okay, so let me just quickly take a little sidetrack here. Because if you think that, hey, this is something that happens to black kids and it's only a few cops and what have you, just if you think, if you th this is from a guy named John W. Whitehead because he wrote a book about this and uh, it's called The Government of Wolves. And uh, he says, uh, this is just uh, the following are cautionary tales for anyone who still thinks that they can defy police officers, even if it's simply to disagree with them about a speeding ticket or challenge a search warrant or defend oneself against unreasonable and unjust charge without deadly repercussions. The message they send is that we the people have very little protection from a standing army that is law enforcement. Here's a couple of quick stories. In Seattle, police repeatedly tasered a seven-month pregnant woman, Malika Brooks, for refusing to sign a speeding ticket. While Brooks bears permanent burns on her body from the encounter, police were cleared of any wrongdoing on the grounds that they didn't know that tasering a pregnant woman was wrong. <laughs> no. Not in the manual. We talked about this on the show. Eight Los Angeles police officers fired 103 bullets at two women in a newspaper delivery truck they mis mistook for a getaway car during a heated manhunt. The older woman was shot twice in the back, and the other was wounded by broken glass. The women were offered $4 million settlement for their injuries, while the officers were reprimanded and retrained and put back on the streets. Officer material. Let's so, there you go. Uh, during the course of a routine investigation, a group of Los Angeles police officers beat, punched, and tasered Kelly Thomas, a schizophrenic homeless and suspected of vandalizing cars. They beat him until he was brain dead. The two officers charged for their role in the beating were acquitted and will face no prison time. New York police, pursuing a man who had reportedly been weaving among cars in Times Square, fired into a crowd, shooting a 54-year-old woman in the knee and another woman in the butt. Although the officers faced no repercussions for their reckless behavior, prosecutors charged the suspect with felony assault on the grounds that he was responsible for the injuries caused by the police. I'll give you one more. Chicago police arrested and beat and sodomized with a gun Angel Perez, pushing in his eye sockets, driving his elbow back into his head, and sticking a gun in his rectum, all in an effort to persuade him to be a drug informant. All the officers remain on active duty. Houston police shot and killed Brian Clownch, a mentally ill double amputee who refused to drop his ballpoint pen. <laughs> the police officer was cleared of any misconduct and remains on the force. Curiously, in the last six years, the Houston Police Department has yet to find a single police shooting unjustified. Between 2007 and 2012, the Houston Police Department officers injured 111 civilians while fatally shooting 109 people, all of them justified. Well, to be fair, it's Houston. I mean, so you get is, what you get if you live there. So right? this is not... A couple of bad cops, okay? People always say, I saw it today on Facebook all over the place, hey, this is 2% of the cops and 98% of the cops are good, which is nice when people just pull stats out of their ass for no, they, not, they just pull it out of their ass. Because let me tell you, this isn't about good cops or bad cops. All cops are pretty much the same. They get into being cops because they dig it. That's why they're cops and not firemen or EMTs or teaching little kids. Oh, they want to help their community. Then why don't you go out and teach little kids to read? Or why don't you go out and become a fireman? That's not. So this is what. And I'm not saying we don't need cops or some of my friends are cops. My family's full of cops. That's how I know this stuff. Not one of them became a cop because they gave a crap about their community. Mm -hmm. They became a cop because they dig it. That's why cops are cops. And we're not. We're not cops because we don't get off on it. 
Okay, so just so you know, and there's a culture in this country right now. It started with the drug. I read about it last. We read that rant last week. It started with the drug war, and it's, mm -hmm. and then after 9/11, it totally went crazy, right? So cops, and by the way, cops crack the heads of peaceful protesters every day, from New York to Los Angeles and everywhere in between during Occupy Wall Street. Union cops crack the head of unemployed, peaceful protesters at the behest of billionaire bankers. And that's who they are. Okay, so let's not forget. They don't care about your rights. They don't, they're not there to protect the Constitution. They're due to get off on power that we need to have. So let's keep that in mind. I mean, and when you say it's mostly good cops and only a couple of bad cops, that stops the conversation that we need to have. And the conversation that we need to have is why are cops driving tanks and wearing camouflage in the streets of Midwest America? Why is it that when the cops show up, you know violence is going to be escalated and not de-escalated? It's never de-escalated. It always goes the other way. Women's History Month is drawing to a close, and as if on cue, we got another example of why paying attention to gender matters and how, for the most part, we still don't do it. In their blistering review of the Ferguson, Missouri Police Department, Justice Department investigators reported that racism was pervasive, along with a long-standing practice of ignoring allegations of racial discrimination and abuse. The statistic that got the most gasps was that in a city where two-thirds of residents are black, just four of Ferguson's 54 commissioned police officers are African-American. Lack of racial diversity dominated the coverage, and rightly so, but investigators also found evidence of another problem, rampant sexual harassment and gender bias. Ferguson, whose population is 58.6% female, has just four female officers, too. That detail showed up in a footnote. As the Washington Post, which caught the footnote, reported, stark gender imbalance is the norm for the vast majority of local police forces, even though 20 years of research has shown that women police officers tend to rely less on physical force and far less frequently get involved in misconduct lawsuits. Way back in 2000, a study released by the Feminist Majority Foundation and the National Center for Women in Policing documented a huge gender gap in police brutality lawsuits, and it's costly. In the 1990s, reported the study, the city of L.A. paid out $63.5 million in lawsuits involving male officers for use of excessive force or sexual assault and domestic violence. By contrast, the city coughed up just $2.8 for female officers for use of excessive force, and not one female officer was named as a defendant in a sexual assault case or a domestic violence suit. As cases of abuse continue, racial discrimination will stay in the headlines as it should, but police patriarchy deserves more than a footnote, too. Will a diverse police department solve all our problems? Probably not. But if we're going to address diversity, 
Let's remember there's more than one sort, and the evidence suggests that shrinking that gender gap just might save both lives and money. Genocide, suicide, children die, mothers cry. Why can't we just spend our time fighting crime and saving lives? Something's wrong, I'm not content. It's time to rise and take a stand. Why can't we use our way out? Find a way and stop the madness. Use the term driving while black while talking about possible sources of discrimination and how the police go about their business, and you will probably face opposition from those who can't accept that there is any racial animus or bias that influences how the police go about their day-to-day -day jobs. But not only is it actually true of the day-to-day -day realities of many black Americans, but new data shows that it's actually getting worse over time. So this information is generated by the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. They analyzed 1.3 million traffic stops in the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. And what you're seeing there is the racial difference between the likelihood that you'll be searched when stopped between whites and blacks and you see that you're already far more likely back in 2002 13 years ago you have something like a 60 70 percent higher chance of being searched if you're black and that has steadily gone up over time something like three times more likely to be searched if you're black in 2013 than if you're white and so this is something that we still have to defend every time you bring up that term that you're more likely if you're a minority to be stopped to be searched to be charged with a crime to be uh, convicted of a crime and it's actually getting worse over time. But we live in a post-racial society. Mm -hmm. We don't see color. I mean, it's this technically is a... true. Post-racial in that you can't talk about it. Right. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. It's unbelievable. I mean, it just shows the, the gross over-policing. I mean, you cannot tell me that that we do not have an institutionalized racist um, mm -hmm. justice system here. And, you know, it's a stop and frisk thing, too. And when people say all lives matter, all lives matter, it's like, yes, they do. But this is a movement about black lives matter for a very good reason, because black yeah. people are like eight times more likely to be gunned down by a police officer than a white yeah. person. And this just exemplifies that point. It's so sad. I mean, being pulled over just because you're black. Yeah. yeah. We did elect a black president, though. Right. That's true. So, so racism is over. Really a problem? You win some, you, you lose, lose yeah. some. Yeah. I mean, you can go into specific issues like marijuana usage, mm -hmm. right? And you can compare blacks and whites and then and try to figure out who gets arrested more for the exact same crime. Mm -hmm. Black individuals, white individuals use marijuana at similar rates, although black people are uh, criminalized or prosecuted at four times the rate of white people. Why yeah. is that? Okay, so people will make the argument, oh yeah, well, black people get pulled over more often because, you know, they're usually doing things wrong all the time. It's white people that don't do anything wrong. That's not true. Mm -hmm. You can compare them in specific crimes if you consider mm -hmm. possession of marijuana a crime and you see a double standard there the two-tier justice system it's a huge yeah. issue and yes it has a lot to do with your skin color but it also has a lot to do with your socioeconomic status if you come from a certain background regardless of what your skin color is the law will come down very hard on you yeah. if you're wealthy and you're the child of wealthy parents well you can use a defense like affluenza and oh, literally God. get away with murder. 
So these are the kinds of things that drive me crazy when you do a story about police brutality and you bring up the issue of race and then you have people denying that something like white privilege exists. White privilege definitely exists. It's called benefit of the doubt. White people get it, black people don't, and it's unfortunate to say the least. I just hate that they look at it in a vacuum and they're like, black people just commit more crimes. You're like, I'm sorry, are you living in reality? Like, have you ever been outside the suburbs? Obviously, <laughs> police are, you know, like you just said, socioeconomics plays the biggest factor in this. Obviously, cops are going to over-police these areas more. Yeah. Um, it's just completely absurd. Yeah. Now, you brought up uh, sort of the different types of crimes. Let's talk about uh, percent difference likelihood of being searched by type of stops. So the violation that supposedly they're getting pulled over for. You're seeing there, uh, apparently, <laughs> black Americans slightly less likely to be searched for driving impaired than white. That's interesting. But in all other cases, you see a large percent difference, including that if you get pulled over because you apparently don't have a seatbelt on, properly secured, as they say, you have almost four times the chance of being searched as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And for the, for the crazy person that sees this and thinks, well, you know, they commit more crimes... What, what about them not wearing a seatbelt is right. so much more, yeah. what, threatening to the cops? Like, so, it's not like that's off and they're growling at the time. It's just that they don't have a seatbelt on. So I love that stat, not because I think it's a good thing, mm -hmm. but because I think that it perfectly demonstrates exactly what I'm referring to when it comes to white privilege. So if you're a white person driving around without a seatbelt, cop gives you the benefit of the doubt. Right. You get away yeah. with it a lot of times, right? He's not going to pull you over and start asking questions. If you're black, well, you know, you might be a little more suspicious, so they're going to pull you over because yeah. they want to ask questions. Or it's just an excuse. Or it's just an excuse, exactly. So that's exactly what people refer to as white privilege. It doesn't mean that you as a white person are doing something wrong. It has to do with stereotypes and how much we've internalized them, whether consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. Right, and it also bleeds into the um, workforce as well. Like, they've done studies that show if you have a resume, and it's the exact same resume, but if you have, like, a black-sounding name, yes. you're way mm -hmm. less likely to be hired. Yeah. Um, so this is across all aspects of society. But then you have laws that justify these uh, extrajudicial assassinations on the street because they're saying, look, if you feared for your life, you can kill this person. Right. And if a cop is racist, even mm -hmm. those cops in San Francisco said you could put an animal down. And that's a multicultural city that is full of, of different it's seen ethnicities. At, like that, uh, Fox, Fox News likes to talk about it as this bastion of liberalism on the West right, Coast. Right. But apparently still some incredible racism. There. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's briefly look at this last chart showing the breakdown by both uh, race and gender here. So you're seeing uh, we do tend to see both black and white uh, males as more threatening than black and white females. But you see difference there uh, in some in many cases black females more likely to be searched than white females as well. And so the largest effect is based on difference in race for males, but a smaller but still significant difference for uh, females as well. Every day I see on my TV people on the news just like me. Are we the only one committing crimes? Are we the only ones doing the time? This show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. If you'd like to learn more about the racial disparities in our criminal justice system, then you may want to check out Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. It uses overwhelming amounts of evidence to drive home the point about the structural injustices at play, and it's available on Audible and can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Hey, 
don't know. Well, the news about South Carolina just continues with the release of the dash cam video, Juan, and you wrote your commentary today in the New York Daily News, your column on uh, South Carolina. Uh, yes, I think one of the things that I try to stress in, in my column is that uh, how many more of these uh, heartbreaking videos are we going to be exposed to across the country before a change occurs in policing in the country? Uh, and I think the, the the critical thing to understand is not only the uh, the videos the the videos of the actual encounters where African American males are are killed by police, but also what happens in the moments afterward. And we now have seen several of these. The Tamir Rice uh, video uh, in, um, uh, in Cleveland in November where the 12-year-old boy uh, is shot by a policeman who arrives within two seconds if he's getting out of the car. But, but then for four minutes after, as the boy is lying on the ground, three police officers just stand around, walk around. No one provides him any kind of, a, uh, of aid until an FBI agent who happens to be in the neighborhood comes along and he he begins to administer CPR uh, to, to Tamir Rice. And when uh, Tamir's sister came running right, over, right. who she was just tackled. 14 years old, they tackle her tackle and her put her in the pre and, and they handcuff her, they have, uh, push her to the ground, handcuff her, and prevent her from getting to her brother. You, then you have the situation with Eric Garner in the Staten Island video, where not only half a dozen police officers stand around as Eric Garner is, is gasping for breath, but then even when the EMS, the paramedics, arrive, they waste four crucial minutes uh, while they are walking around not treating him. That Those four paramedics were eventually suspended for their actions on that day. Uh, and then, of course, now we have the South Carolina situation uh, where, once again, after Officer Slager shoots, uh, uh, shoots Walter Scott and another uh, African-American officer arrives on the scene, Habersham, they stand around. Uh, uh, Habersham checks for the wound. Uh, they talk on their radios. They discuss where is my my vehicle, but they don't administer any kind of aid to uh, uh, to Walter Scott. So you have this, uh, and then people wonder why the Black Lives Matter movement has grown and spread so rapidly across the country when people are seeing these videos where people who are shot are not even given uh, immediate aid. And police use their force to prevent bystanders from administering aid. Yes. When you look at Ramsey Orta's film, and again, Ramsey Orta remains in Rikers Island, the only person arrested um, uh, around the Eric Garner case, though it was in an unrelated charge, he's the one who videoed. When you look at that video and listen, bystanders saying, help him, help him. The police use their authority to prevent anyone to help him, and then they themselves don't help. All right, and then, then people wonder why there's such anger across, spreading across the country. When you speak the truth, they want to break your jaw. All this chaos leaving us all apart. As the evil people applaud the righteous fall. It takes so much to write this, y'all. Watching this, all casualties fall. The ones around the hero help. When for their life they call. When for their life they call. When for their life they call. Give them a breath they can't breathe. Give them a breath they can't breathe. We're a suspect as soon as we arrive. No chance we'll leave. Alive in one piece. But all we want is some peace. But all we want is some peace. No matter the trial of tribulation, we'll climb that ladder. Cause black lives matter. Cause black lives matter. Cause black lives matter.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism demands an executive order on racist, violent policing. According to killedbypolice.net, a site that aggregates mainstream media accounts of people killed by law enforcement, at least 238 black Americans were killed by police in 2014. The FBI states that police kill a black American every three days. Most certainly, extrajudicial police killings are underreported as we rely on a combination of police department records and eyewitness accounts to piece together incidents of racist policing. Even with the coverage in Ferguson and protests across the country following the murders of too many since Mike Brown, indictments remain rare and apparently the federal government can do something about it without needing congressional action. Diego Iniguez Lopez and Alan Jenkins put the current climate and historical context at truth out, explaining why this call for President Obama to act is not without precedent. Quote, 50 years ago, activists in Selma looked to the federal government when they were faced with violence at the hands of the state and local law enforcement. Similarly, federal action is now critically needed on the issues of police killings of youth of color and equal justice for all. The Obama administration has an opportunity and obligation not only to shape its legacy, but also to use its federal authority to prevent civil rights abuses by police departments, unquote. Color of Change is among those calling for President Obama to issue an executive order which would, quote, crack down on violent and discriminatory policing by issuing an executive order to direct the DOJ to enforce our civil rights laws more aggressively, unquote. You can sign and share their petition at colorofchange.org asking the president to help end this national civil and human rights crisis. Short of abolishing the police, which many are advocating for, but which the president couldn't unilaterally accomplish, we are left to demand that laws, justice and force not be left to individual cops to enforce and to hold violent police and their departments accountable. Sign the petition, share the articles, demand action. We shouldn't need a video of an unarmed man being shot in the back for there to be a chance of justice. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending racist policing matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Color of Change's campaign for executive action via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. To the girl on Facebook who commented hashtag all lives matter. After deeming the protests she attended a hateful event Martin Luther King would have been ashamed of. Call it an overreaction. Call it a riot. A violent protest. Call it everything but justified. Ask us to be polite. To stay calm. To voice grief with respect while our brothers' bodies are laid out on the street, sounding the alarm. Our bodies are threats well before they are human, and you still want to know the source of our rage. You fear our rage will happen across a storefront window, will happen across a corporate office. You fear the glass shards glittering under police helicopters. 
We fear your rage will drag our children into the streets and dance in the red pool beaming under street lamps. I cannot decorate this pain for you. I cannot make a beautiful homage. I can't invoke hope in prayer. I don't know how to make you understand the occupation your ignorance has blinded you to. That black bodies are stopped and frisked so often, we might as well call our cities war zones. Every street corner a checkpoint. Violence is not always a dead body. Violence can be a pat down in broad daylight because you share the same hue as suspect violence is indicting the man who filmed the killing of Eric Garner, but not the officer that illegally choked the life out of his body while five others assisted in the arrest. Violence is convincing a jury that he caused his own death, that had he not been overweight, he would have survived violence is needing six officers to arrest one unarmed, nonviolent man in the first place. How can we accept a government that only applies the law to fill prisons with black bodies? How can we accept a government that permits and perpetuates violence against its people? The state traded white hoods for police uniforms. The cops kill more black people each year than the KKK lynched. And you want our marches peaceful. You want us calm. You want us quiet. Stop asking us to bite our tongues when we cannot guarantee our siblings safe passage to the corner store. Yet you still want to talk about looting. Want to police our protest tactics. You want me to know that you would have cared about the tombstones this nation is hoarding if we hadn't blocked traffic. You think stopping trains is silly. You want us to march peacefully, to replicate your disfigured perception of Martin. But Dr. King said, riots are the voices of the unheard and you will hear us now. It is not enough for you to hold our dead in your prayers, to wish us love and light. I get the sentiment but it won't keep my kin from becoming ghosts. I am not interested in resignations or remorse. I don't want apologies. I don't want your guilt. I don't want your tears. I don't want insistence on how not racist you are. I don't want to know how many black friends you have when you won't even risk the discomfort of calling out your own classmates. You just don't get it, do you? You've never lived out the aftermath the empty seat at the dinner table, the now-widowed mother with six mouths to feed, my kin are being sent to heaven well before God has requested their return, and you want to know why Malcolm called whiteness the devil. You can say all lives matter, but all lives are not killed every 28 hours. All lives will matter when black lives matter. How many more bodies will be enough evidence? How many videos of our last words? How many more must there be for you to finally call this a genocide?
Hi, Jay. Aaron from Philly here. After the recent episode about Indiana RIFRA and the various boycott movements that are going on, I just wanted to make a bit of a plug. I'm a member of an LGBT community band in Philadelphia that's part of a national organization called uh, Lesbian and Gay Bands of America, LGBA. And uh, LGBA is made up of member bands in cities throughout the United States. And it has the pretty great distinction, pretty great honor of being the first LGBT musical organization to have been invited to participate in the presidential inaugural parade in 2012. They're also holding uh, their annual conference and concert, and it just so happens that this year's host city is Indianapolis. And appropriately enough, the theme, the, the, the slogan for the concert this year is music, visibility, and pride. So uh, I wanted to reach out to you because of the visibility part. The, like I said, the host band is Pride of Indy. Uh, it's the Indianapolis-based LGBT band organization. And it would be really great if uh, we could get out the support of any allies in the community that are there for our conference this summer. It's running from August 6th to 9th. Uh, they hold a concert that's open to the public, and we're going to be doing a parade in downtown Indianapolis as well. And so the more people we could have turn out for that, especially, the better. People are interested to get more information. The conference and the concerts, it's lgba2015.org. And if they're interested in the host organization, it's prideofindy.org. Thanks, Jay. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay. This is James from Missouri. Just listening to some of the voicemails uh, about the labels, progressive, liberal, and whatnot. Uh, I couldn't agree with you and with Chuck from Utah more. Uh, these labels are just getting in our way. Um, I've noticed, as I've been listening to your show over the past year or so, uh, coming from a conservative background, but still having some conservative leanings, I find that, uh, that there's a gap being bridged. Um, and I don't know if it's, if it's due to my personal development or due to the development of your show or maybe a, a mixture of both. But if, if we as ordinary people, whether you be conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, whatever the case, uh, if we don't stand up and start taking action against some of the tyranny that's trying to take over our country, uh, we're all in the same boat. And so in the end, it doesn't matter what you call yourself. And so I just, I'm glad that uh, some of these things are starting to come together for me. I love listening to your show. Keep up the good work. Hey, Jay, this is Todd from an occupied Rochester. So, love your show, looking for something better, capitalism. Wanted to alert your listeners to a project that came out of uh, Occupy Montreal called J-O-A-T-U.org, or jackofalltradesuniverse.org. And what they are doing is not just setting up an alternative marketplace, but also building better communities through technology and the use of what they call community pods, which you can sign up for and be part of to either find a job or trade skills, trade equipment, share food, and it's all based upon either your level of commitment or your ability to, say, like, travel. So you can select your pod space to be you know, if you only have a bicycle within three miles of yourself, or if you have a car and you're willing to, you know, go all the way across town, your pod could be a whole city or even a whole state. So that's J 
S-O-A-T-U.org. Uh, it's a really cool idea, and uh, I encourage your listeners to check it out. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay, this is Ian from Chattanooga, and uh, I was listening to the last show about capitalism, and it got me thinking about how everyone keeps talking about uh, Rand Paul and libertarianism, and how good it would be if we had an alternative to capitalism, and I was thinking, do these people know nothing about history? Well, we already had a libertarian paradise in this country. It was in the late 1800s. It's called the Gilded Age. And the market ruled everything. Uh, children were working in factories at ungodly ages, five, six, seven years old. Uh, old people were dying in the streets. They had no social security, had no safety net at all. People were finding fingers in their sausage and worse. Sometimes food was put on the shelf and it was already toxic or update. All of that because we had no regulation and the market was allowed to decide everything. So if people want that again, that's libertarianism. That's what you'll get. Complete freedom. Complete freedom to die of botulism. Uh, complete freedom to have your son or daughter skip school and go work in a factory or in a field picking up trash. That's the future. That's libertarianism. And I don't know if anyone's thought about it, but just go read about the Gilded Age. So, that's my thought on it, and thanks very much for the show, and for everything you do. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I just want to piggyback on what Todd was saying. Uh, he was uh, suggesting the Jack of All Trades Universe website. And it definitely sounds like an interesting concept, uh, sort of a marketplace where you can exchange skills and uh, and very much along those lines I, I just also want to suggest time banking and it, it might be a little bit more widespread than jack of all trades is at the moment and so you can either google it or go to timebanks.org basically you know you can spend time volunteering helping uh, someone else in your community which gives you credit in your time bank account and then when you have uh, time banked, then you can withdraw that by having someone else in the community help you do something. So it's just a nice way to, you know, create a little bit of a marketplace where, you know, members of the community can support each other, even if two people don't need each other's help, but, uh, you know, you can sort of trade your help, you know, around with lots of people. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, though, today is that uh, women of color really didn't get mentioned a whole lot in today's show. And, you know, one might be left with the impression that, you know, it's just black men who are getting killed by police and, you know, women of color just really aren't in involved. You know, they're not being affected by this phenomenon. And that is absolutely not true. But for reasons that I do not understand their stories do not get reported on in the same way and, and not nearly to the same degree. So when I am, you know, collecting material for a show like this, it's like 99 to one, maybe, uh, stories about 
black men being killed uh, by police versus black women. And it's a very strange phenomenon. My theory is that, you know, as I think we've sort of laid out in, in the show today, that, you know, a, a lot of the extrajudicial killing by police has a lot to do with just sort of a, you know, a, a disinterest in, in these people's lives and, you know, basically uh, the idea that their lives don't matter, hence Black Lives Matter. And with men, there's the added element of fear that's always the excuses, you know, they were about to do something terrifying, so I had to act rashly. And my theory is that they don't use that excuse with women, and they probably don't have that same fear of women. So the the basic disinterest uh, or apathy towards the lives of people of color, regardless of gender, is still there. But the added element of fear may not be there for women, which makes things play out differently. So, yeah, sure, you know, women are still getting killed, uh, but probably in different ways, maybe less dramatic ways. And and then something about, the, you know, there's just uh, the, the magic ingredient seems to be missing that makes the media latch on to that and, and you know, and, and want to uh, amplify those stories. So I obviously wanted to make that note here, <laughs> to to point out that I wish I could do a better job of amplifying those stories. I just don't have them really to amplify. So, I mean, if you have theories on why that is, or if you have uh, thoughts on how I could do a better job of of getting those stories out, you, you know where they're being reported, please let me know. Uh, the number again, 202-9993-991. I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on, on that or anything else. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And Stories and forget who it is before.